If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Live from Santa Monica, California, it is Moving Past Trauma Live. The Wednesday wrap, blindsided. Former NFL star Michael Orr alleges that the movie and best-selling book, The Blind Side, which won Sandra Bullock an Oscar, was all a lie. He says that he was not never really adopted by the Tuies. They instead entered him into a conservatorship, which is interesting. We're going to talk about that. And, of course, Brian Koberger is due in court this Friday, August 18th. The defense is alleging some technicalities in the original indictment with the grand jury. We're going to get into that. I have a video I'm going to play with my father alleging these sort of like, I call them technicality errors on ways to get yourself out of trouble. And Rex Horman is back in the news again, of course, because not only is he just off watch in the jail cell that he's currently sitting in, but he also has groupies and he is a suspect potentially in some disappearances of sex workers that have been in the Las Vegas area over the last decade or so because he owned a timeshare there. This is Moving Past Trauma, the Wednesday wrap. Let's get into it. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial. In when I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself. And it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Trauma. Mover Nation, what's going on? Happy Wednesday, August 16th. Wow, the year is just flying, flying, flying by. I don't even know what to say. What do you all think? Is it flying by for you? It certainly, and it's like, certainly is for me. Absolutely. Lots to discuss today on our Wednesday wrap. You guys know the deal. You know, uh, subscribe if you haven't, like if you can, and please leave a comment. Hit that little bell for notifications. And remember, if you, you, can, li- you can listen to this on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. So now let's get into it. So Brian Koberger (laughs) and his legal team, he wants his indictment thrown out for some legal clerical errors, not even legal, (laughs) clerical errors. And and when I first heard this, and this this obviously came out on, um, I believe, Monday, uh, that his defense was filing these motions And there's an upcoming motion to compel, which is on Friday, I believe. They are alleging a bunch of clerical errors, which I think about this a lot because in my own case with my father, and I'm going to play a clip, an audio clip uh, later on in the show of him that I made for you guys. But essentially, uh, these are, I call this the grabbing at straws defense Um, which is, you know, very intriguing to me uh, because it's like, is this all you got? I mean, I guess, right? They're, you know, they have their own DNA person that they're going to call as their experts. And apparently because this, this trial, for those of you who don't realize, I believe it's coming up on October the 6th. It's coming up very, very quickly. So Koberger wants his indictment thrown out. Koberger 
says that the grand jury that indicted him was flawed and that the argument, and this is the argument that is being made by his attorneys. Uh, you know, he was obviously been indicted for the deaths of the four University of Idaho students in Moscow. And of course, he has entered a not guilty plea. He is, of course, innocent until proven guilty in a, in a court of law. So he is technically the, uh, you know, he is the accused, as we like to put it, um, because he is, right? Uh, so we're not passing any judgment. But, his, you know, and look, his attorneys are really, like, they're doing their job, right? Their, their job is to represent him and, you know, do it legally and ethically. So I think a lot of times uh, attorneys sometimes get catch a lot of flack for representing their, uh, their clients, you know, and they're just trying to do the best they can. I mean, this is a very, there's a lot of evidence in this case, apparently. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that's going to come out <laughs> and this whole thing is going to be a, uh, a, a fiasco. So Koberger, uh, you know, his attorneys, they're doing their job. They're, you know, they're filing all these motions and they're doing the best that they can legally and ethically, because after all, he is not only facing the death penalty, uh, you know, at the very, you know, at the most extreme, but he's also facing life in prison. So they want to give their client the best representation that they can. And so they're being, you know, a little more aggressive to say the least. They are, before they ever reviewed the grand jury material to determine if there was an actual violation of the Idaho Grand Jury Selection and Service Act, Coburn through his attorneys, they already filed a motion uh, to stay the case so that they could actually look at the transcripts to determine if there was in fact a violation. And even though they'd already filed that motion saying there was a violation before they had actually looked at it. I know, I, I know, think about that. But, you know, the judge and judge judge hadn't made a showing yet, but uh, but basically he said, look, I'm gonna give you 37 days in which you have to come up with something. And they have, but it was filed under seal, so we don't have it yet, and, you know, we don't know. But what wasn't filed under seal was the prosecutor's response, and, well, let's take a look at that. So the prosecutors are arguing that this motion was done not with any good faith at all, uh, but was simply done to grind this litigation to a halt. And they're not working on the preparation for the case. So a lot of people are calling this what it, what it appears to be, which is a, you know, a stalling tactic. Again, this is legal brinksmanship. This is legal, uh, you know, maneuvering, posturing. And this is what, you know, lawyers do. This is also what our legislators do, which makes, I think, all of us crazy when dealing with the political process, because we're all just like pulling our hair out. Why can't anyone get anything done? Well, we forget that most of these people that are in public office, or at least in the, the House and the Senate, are all lawyers anyway. So it's always lawyers fighting lawyers. So this is, again, the same thing playing out, obviously, in the court system. As we're seeing, the court has granted them, obviously, a little bit of time, but to to prove all of this. Some of the things that they're alleging are the people who were on the grand jury didn't check the right boxes on the forms. For example, like there's a clerical error where somebody didn't check that they spoke English. Well, clearly if you're sitting on a grand jury and you're listening to a case to decide whether you want to indict this individual or not, you probably do speak English. So it's these little like nitpicky things like this. And you know, like why, why, why would you be on, like, why would you be like, to, why would you be on a jury, let alone like a petite jury that sits in court, but an actual grand jury that sends down the indictments. If you didn't speak English, it's again, this legal brinksmanship, these games. And it, you know, it's just, 
and it's how the evidence is presented. And it's, it's sort of infuriating when you think about it. Again, this made me think of, you know, because they wouldn't be per- permitted on a grand jury to begin with. And this makes me think of uh, a situation that I had recently discovered uh, a podcast that had interviewed my father. And I've talked about this a little bit and I wanted to play. I made a little video for you guys of this actual podcast. Uh, I threw in some of my own personal stuff from a murder in Mansfield just to kind of add some visual sousson, if you will. But uh, I want to share that with you guys because, again, this is something that my father is alleging to try to get hit released from prison, saying that he has, in fact, that there was improper filing of paperwork. So I'm going to lo- cue this up for you guys uh, because I found it just, just when I'm reading about this, I'm going, this just... This feels like the exact same thing. So here we go. In this podcast, this woman's going to introduce herself, but uh, this podcast was was done a couple of years ago. Um, this is Candace Hudson, and I am the founder of Understand Before You Judge. We are a nonprofit organization that educates and brings awareness to the misconduct in the judicial system. Okay, thank you. Uh, my name is John F. Uh, Jack Boyle, Jr. Some people call me Doc, but I prefer Jack. I am incarcerated at the Marion Reintegration Center, Marion Correctional Institution, Marion, Ohio. My prison ID number is A222633.00. My criminal case originated in the Richmond County Common Pleas Court, Richland County, Ohio, case number 90, CR56-H. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. My presiding trial judge was James, Judge James D. Henson. On July 2nd, 1990, I was convicted of aggravated murder by a jury trial. There are substantive questions surrounding the veracity of my trial which I will point out in synopsis so as not to take away from the weight and gravity of the facts and circumstances surrounding the true cause of my detention. I was accused of killing my wife, Noreen. While I owned homes in Ohio and Pennsylvania, her body was found at the unoccupied Pennsylvania home, and the autopsy was performed in Pennsylvania. As is most relevant here, there are three critical components of the autopsy that bear mentioning. Number one, the manner of death was suffocation. Number two, the coroner found, as the autopsy report confirms, there were no physiological signs of suffocation. And number three, the coroner could not determine the place of death, the time of death, or the date of death. And more critically still, the coroner did not conclude or render any verdict that the death was the result of a homicide. No physical, forensic, blood or DNA evidence or signs of a struggle, trace evidence, fingerprints, or any other inculpatory evidence was found in the home in Pennsylvania. Hence, or therefore, Pennsylvania authorities refused to bring a criminal prosecution. Despite all of the above, State of Ohio, by and through the Richland County Prosecutor's Office, brought charges against me for aggravated murder for the death of Noreen as occurring in Richland County, Ohio. A thorough search of my residence in Richland County resulted in a patent lack of any inculpatory evidence. 
They did not prove that Noreen's death occurred in Richland County, Ohio, nor the time or date of death, nor did they amend the coroner's verdict from Pennsylvania to a finding that a homicide as the cause of death. What they did do, however, was manipulate and brainwash my 11-year-old son, Collier. During my pretrial detention in the Richland County Jail, my son and two-year-old adopted This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. And two-year-old adopted daughter, Elizabeth Ashley, were placed in the probate court ordered care and custody of his, high, of his school principal and her husband, Lynn and David Riggenbach. Lieutenant David Messmore of the Mansfield Police Department would come to the Riggenbach's home on Friday evening and take my son Collier with him to his home for the weekend, returning my son to the Riggenbach's home on Sunday evening. Spending every weekend with my son, Messmore would buy my son clothes, sneakers, and toys. Messmore's conduct continued during my pretrial detention, ostensibly without the permission of the Common Pleas Court, the Probate Court, the Mansfield Police Department, or the Richland County Prosecutor's Office, and presumably intimidated the Riggenbachs into thinking he had such permission. Interestingly, Messmore never took my two-year-old daughter anywhere. The tampering and grooming of my son as a future witness was to denigrate, inculpate, and belittle his father and to testify on the, quote, bump in the night theory the prosecutor espoused as causing Noreen's death. So here is one of the things that I find, I don't mean to laugh at this, but um, this is, you know, it's interesting because this was done uh, years, years later uh, from my film, A Murder in Mansfield. So this is a fairly recent interview in the last couple of years that my father has done. But uh, it's interesting that he talks about like the tampering and grooming thing, right? Because uh, my testimony was, you know, uh, you can't, <laughs> you can't, te- you can't groom someone when they gave a statement months before they, you know, I gave a statement to the police literally the day that my mother went missing and to her friends. And then when I met with Lieutenant Messmore some days later, told him the same thing. So this wasn't like uh, they planted in my head this, quote, bump in the night theory <laughs> that they're ale- that he's alleging uh, because I- I'm the one that planted that theory in their heads because that's what I heard. So, which was of course the, the taking of my mother's life. And that is something that I feel like, um, you know, again, this is this grabbing at straws sort of motion. And I wanted to play this because I, when I see these things, I just kind of go, Oh, okay. Well, mm, (laughs) this reminds me of my father and this, again, this legal and maneuvering. And I, and I also share this with you guys because I also feel like, you know, this is obviously done after the fact, right? My father's been incarcerated for years and years and years at this point, uh, almost 30 years. And he is uh, alleging that there was this misconduct and, you know, paperwork errors, technicality errors, et cetera, et cetera, after he was already incarcerated, which is sort of like, you know, 
you know, sour grapes, if you will. But not only that, he's never actually saying like, I didn't do this. <laughs> he's not alleging that really at all uh, or giving an alternative theory. He's saying that all these technicalities are alleging that uh, and this malfeasance happened not because of him. So it's this, it's a total deflection deflection. It's this total uh, manipulation as you guys can see and et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's interesting. And I, and I literally happened upon this and uh, you know, I wanted to share and I'll play a little bit more of this and then we can sort of move on to what I want to talk about. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Richland County Clerk of Courts as being witnessed as a true and correct copy of the judgment entry filed on July 3rd, 1990. Also, the Deputy Court Clerk of Courts then, Joyce Shetler, wife of the Richland County Sheriff, her signature appears on the Nunc Pro Tonk document. Not only did this Nunc Pro Tonk entry substantially change the sentence from 20 years to 20 full years, this extrajudicial proceeding occurred, number one, without my physical presence, number two, without my right to counsel present, and number three, without notice or opportunity to object and of greater constitutional significance, it exceeded the power, the proper use of the office of non proton. It violated the time-honored principle that once the presiding trial judge file and journalize the judgment, the trial court is without jurisdiction to review its own former judgment. The authorized modes and forms of law recognizing that the 7290 sentence entry was contrary to law is to appeal, not a secretive, concerted conspiracy to the suspension of my civil and constitutional rights. As it now stands, after repeatedly attempting to obtain copies of the 7290 judgment entry and the 73 Nung Pro Tunk entry from the Richland County Clerk of Courts, now Linda H. Freire, who still has not provided the already paid for postage copy and certification fees for these documents. I was able, by the grace of God, to obtain these documents, which now has the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction in a frenzy, recognizing that my 30 years, nearly 30 years in prison, has been false in prison. You know, for the skeptics who say I am guilty and should be punished until the day I die, I will say only this. History shows that the victor writes history, whether there are great wars, whether the Trail of Tears, whether the African-American, Irish, and Asian slavery systems in this country, or the civil rights movement. The victor writes the story. As a friend, one, a friend once told me, he said, he who controls the pen controls the end. At the onset of this discussion, I stated in no uncertain terms, if it begins with a lie or it ends with a lie. <laughs> if it begins with a liar, it ends with a lie. I can't believe... <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've listened to this once, but... 
I just can't. I just can't fathom his comparison towards himself and the American civil rights movement and all these other things that are of great importance and integrity and, and, and groundbreaking in American history and himself. Uh, but it, this is again, like grandiosity and this is narcissism and psychopathy. These are all these things. These just very grand delusions Delusions of grandeur or illusions of grandeur that are just absolutely wild to me. So, um, yeah, I just, I don't even, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> uh, but this is what it is, you know? Um, and it's interesting because, uh, you know, he then says, well, the, the, now it's got the state of Ohio in a frenzy. I haven't heard of this frenzy. I just was made aware of this not too long ago, this interview. And so I, I, I wanted to share, but it's again, when I see the Koberger thing and when I see the stuff that goes on with, you know, these, these you know, attorneys and, and it, all this legal posturing, I just can't help but think, <laughs> I just can't help but think of this. So, uh, yeah. And I think also there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, a, um, there's a lot of very, um, interesting legal maneuvers and a lot of manipulation that goes on in these types of things. So anyways, I, I, and again, distracting from the fact that, you know, he's, he's then, he says very clearly, um, how, uh, most people want to see me incarcerated till the day I die or to, for in perpetuity. It's like, no, you want to serve the time because he doesn't say, well, I'm innocent because I didn't do this because he admitted that he did it in my film. Right. I mean, to a certain degree, at least. So again, this is like the sort of dangerous thing. And, and, and when I hear this from my father and when I look at this case again, I, I, I'm harking back into this scenario where, because a lot of people ask me, you know, what if this happened to you now? What if this had happened in present day, you know, present day, United States, Ohio, whatever, present times, right? Where we have the court system has advanced. And I feel like in a lot of ways, when I look at the judicial system in this country, there's, you know, there was, a, there was, uh, uh, you know, it's it sort of bifurcated, if you will, if I'm using that correctly, where once the O.J. Simpson trial became something real and we saw these like really high-powered defenses and a lot of technicalities if the blood don't if the glove don't fit, acquit, those types of scenarios, that type of legal jargon, the type of media manipulation that we see these things happen. I think, like, what if this had happened now? And I come to the conclusion that it would be so bad. I can't even, because not only would there be this like tabloid conjecture because my father had a mistress and there's a, you know, a, a child out of wedlock, then there's this adopted sister, then there's my mother, and then there's my father making all these allegations of baby gold smuggling and all this craziness, right? Which didn't happen at the trial. They all happened afterwards, right? But then there's the, so that would have taken up the, the tabloid conjecture. It would have just been a circus, right? And then you throw into this, these technicalities again, this legal brinkmanship, this this uh, this whataboutism almost uh, in these in this scenario. I mean, this is total whataboutism, if you will, because 
well, what about the technicality? So therefore I can't do this and yada, yada, you know? So, um, again, very, very interesting. And it makes me like so grateful that this did not, that this happened so long ago because then justice was to be able to be served. And I think about the victims, uh, of these four college students and the way that this, this circus is playing out and their quest for justice and, it's a quagmire. It's a quagmire. It's, it's the stuff that they're going through and they're being subjected to is just horrific. And that's outside of like, forget the, forget the, you know, the whole, uh, the crime itself or, um, the, the, what they're being subjected to with the tabloid conjecture. But then again, this like legal, like just brinksmanship is just is just sort of nutty to me i'll, I'll let this play out the lie here has resulted in 30 almost nearly 30 years of false imprisonment and if they couldn't get that right so much so another judge the prosecutor and the clerk of courts conspired to manufacture an entry that resulted in my 30 years of imprisonment then we have truly found the liar and the lie the 14th amendment of the U.S. Constitution guarantees that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The process required a manner of death and cause of death. We don't have that here. The process required a time, a date, and a place of death. We don't have that here. The process This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. I gotta leave this. The process in. required proof of jurisdiction and venue beyond reasonable doubt. We don't have that here. The, prosecute, the process required where the lead homicide detective, David Messmore, purposely tampered with a material witness, my son, every weekend for months prior to my trial, grooming the testimony of a child against his father. We don't have that here. The process required that once the trial judge Henson pronounced the sentence in open court and journalized it on the docket with the clerk of courts, the penalty phase of the proceedings must cease. We don't have that here. The process required that no other person, judge, prosecutor, or clerk of court, can reopen a closed case to employ and effectuate its own brand of justice. And we certainly don't have that here. I am 76 years old. I have spent the last 30, nearly 30 years in prison for one of a valid judicial entry. I have been demonized and vilified and called every name in the book. I have been perceived and presumed. And yet, at day's journey then, I want only what you would want if fitted in my shoes. A fair trial and a fair tribunal and a sentence that is constitutionally enforceable. So my father, a lot of times... Um, uh, when he would talk to me over the years, he would talk about um, new law versus old law, right? So, and I get a lot of questions from you guys um, asking about my father's sentence and like the parole situation and uh, how all that works, right? And so um, there's, there's <laughs> when you go to prison or when you're sentenced to prison, you know, for a crime, there's like old law and there's new law. Now, this is how it works in Ohio. I don't know how it works anywhere else, but this is how it was explained to me with him uh, and how he explained it to me how it works. Because when you're in prison with other criminals, you have people that come in obviously earlier and later than you do. So things always change. Laws evolve, laws change. And so it's like, 
you know, you can, you know, somebody else who maybe committed the same crime might get less time than you because laws change, right? And that has happened. That happens a lot. So my father had explained to me many years ago that old law versus new laws, old law, you get convicted, you go to prison and you have to appear before a parole board to get released. New law is you, you, and you're, and for example, let's say you're supposed to get a life sentence, but you get 20 years, you go for parole. And then if they let you out, they let you out. Right. So you're not in prison for life. Whereas if you get a life sentence nowadays, that's it. There's no parole. There's no nothing. There might be appeals, which is again, going back to this Koberger thing a while ago, the lawyers for Koberger, you know, they're, like I said, they're doing their job and he is an accused person who is going to stand trial, right? I believe it's October 2nd is actually the day uh, that the trial is supposed to start. We'll see if that happens, by the way. But they, they're, they're teeing all this up for an appeal later, right? So they have grounds for an appeal. That's why they're teeing this up of like, oh, okay, so there wasn't, uh, you know, oh, the, the grand jury wasn't, you know, elected properly, or they didn't check the box, or the paperwork wasn't filled out properly, who knows, right? So you have those situations that they're doing. And like I said, they're doing their job. I know we like to, you know, it's trial by social media. It's trial by the court of public opinion and all oh, these guilty. Oh, they did this and this. Look, these people are doing their jobs for their clients. That's how it goes. They're using the law. They're utilizing the law in the way that best suits them. So it's very hard you know, you got to sort of detach, you know, it's, it's facts over feelings, as I like to say, facts over feelings. Our feelings tell us, oh, there's this person who's guilty. They need to go to jail. They, the victims need justice. Yes, I'm with you. But it's facts over feelings. You can't send people to prison who aren't guilty. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they have to be tried in a court of law. It is everyone's right, right? But again, my father is trying to use these very nitpicky technicalities, like a paper being signed a day late and stuff. It does not change the fact that he still committed the crime, right? And I, and it, it, to sort of, I don't, I don't mean to talk in circles with this, but this is again uh, how I can see the justice system changing over the years, right? Is now this legal brinksmanship comes into, and I'm sure there was a lot of it way back in the day. I mean, one of my favorite books growing up was To Kill a Mockingbird, right? And you know, Atticus Finch defending a man. And, and, you know, there was a lot of that sort of, you know, good-hearted, well-intentioned legal work that went into this. And now, the days it feels like there is, again, this a lot of this legal brinksmanship that is happening, maneuver, lawyer games, if you will, that occur in the court system. And it's, uh, you know, it, it can be really frustrating for people uh, victims, families, people just trying to get justice. It really, 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 really sucks. But yes, facts over feelings. I don't say that enough, actually. Uh, facts over feelings. So, um, but yeah. And, um, and look, uh, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's a hard pill to swallow a little bit for sure. Uh, but I'm going to play a little bit more of this and then we'll get out of it. A wise old friend of mine once told me, you can take the skunk out of the jury box, but you cannot take out the stink. And just as a crime does not make its doer guilty, incarceration pending lawful privilege to do so does not make it right. This is what I know, this is what I have, and it speaks for itself. At the end of the day, I have been falsely imprisoned for nearly 30 years. I just want a sentence that is authorized by law. 
I would like to thank uh, our sponsor, Understand Before You Judge, for this forum to speak. The documents are available online at my docket at the Richland County Clerk of Courts Office, case number 90CR56-8. And I would like to close with the words of the great American hero, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that we shall match your ability to cause great suffering with our ability to endure great suffering. I give all praises and glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Oh, my goodness. Again, with Dr. Martin Luther. I mean, oh, what blasphemy. You can you cannot align yourself with someone like Dr. King. I'm sorry. No. Oh, this is just sometimes. I swear, sometimes. Wow. Uh, just absolute rubbish. Uh, I'm... I'm uh, I, 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 Sometimes I'm at a loss for words, you know, and at least, at least my father is an intelligent human being, but man, I'll tell you what, um, oh boy, oy, oy vey, if ever there's an oy vey, that deserves an oy vey. Oh goodness. Oh goodness. Um, <laughs> I don't really know where to go from here. Uh, so shifting gears, cause this is the Wednesday wrap. We have a lot going on. So something was interesting. I'm going to get off like absolute topic here from, from sort of absolute, like, um, uh, complete tra tragedy and, and just craziness, uh, to something that I thought was very interesting is, uh, there was an article that was in, came out in Vanity Fair last week. I don't know. You guys hear this and I saw that it was trending. Uh, well, not, not this particular article, but it, it was, um, uh, Brad Pitt is trending because he's dating a new person. Her name is Inez, uh, Inez de Ramon. Um, there was an article that was in Vanity Fair that came out last week that was discussing, uh, his relationship with Angelina Jolie, who he was married to for, I, I think, uh, close to a decade, I believe. I think they divorced in 2019, but there was a, um, uh, there was a vineyard that they had purchased back in like 2014, 2015. And one of the things that I, I think is interesting, and look, I, I, I like Brad Pitt. Um, I've always really liked him as an actor. I thought his sort of Hollywood journey was very interesting. He had sort of made up a story that he was going to go out here for graphic design, and he has sort of a graphic design background. He's from Missouri, I believe. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge... You know, I, I like the guy a little bit. You know, I, I like I, I respect him as an actor and a performer. Um, I don't know a lot about his personal relationships, but there was this article in Vanity Fair discussing this vineyard that they had purchased, um, and he had hired a, a um, he had hired a, um, a a winemaker because this this vineyard that they had hired. I'm just going to speak in very vague generalities and sort of sum it up, but he had hired a winemaker who, who had made this wine, this rosé called Whispering Angel. And this particular vineyard that they had purchased in this estate, obviously massive, amazing, you know, south of France, palatial estate for like $25 million or something, came with this vineyard and a, and a winery. And he had hired this winemaker who had made Whispering Angel, which is when I drank wine and when I was a drinker, I really loved Whispering Angel. It's like $25 and it's a really good bottle of rosé if you're, if you're into wine. I'm not, obviously. Um, 
but uh and they had they had started producing a lot of rose and they had signed this they were signing this deal with um not allied demex spirits but um I think it was maybe the stoli maybe stoli vodka was coming to the table to purchase this and him and Angelina Jolie had agreed to be partner. They were partners in this vineyard, and this was going to be the like retirement home and the and where the family you know settles in after all the fame and glitz and glamour and the kids are raised and this is their family palatial estate that they leave to the family, right? And you know this was obviously soured by Brad, who has admitted to having an alcohol problem, right? And obviously, if you have an alcohol problem, buying a vineyard is probably not a really good thing to do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he's, he became more and more public about his alcohol problem. Well, what happened in is this article in Vanity Fair, which is pages and pages and pages long. I listened to a podcast about it. But essentially, uh, there was this big blow up that had happened on a private flight back to United States from their vineyard where him and Angelina got into it. He was drinking on the plane. Apparently he struck one of the children. He threatened her. Obviously you have an alcohol problem. And if you have any sort of tendencies for rage, and I looked up his birth date is December 18th, 1963. So December 18th, Sagittarius, full on Sagittarius. I was in a relationship with the Sagittarius no offense to Sagittarius, but they can, they're a fire sign. They can be very, they can be quick to temper and then very quick to like come down, but they can have a temper. Um, and uh, apparently he struck one of the children and, and obviously on an airplane terrified the whole family in a private plane. When they arrived, I believe they, they flew into Detroit or someplace uh, to refuel. And uh, I believe it's Detroit or maybe it was Minneapolis, some, some Midwestern area. And they uh, were going to continue on to California. Angelina said, we need to like, just chill out and you need to sober up. I'm taking the kids to a hotel. Let's fly tomorrow. He, of course, was fuming and then said, no, I'm going home without you. And then left with the private plane and left them wherever they were. And they had to fly back. I'm sure they hired another private jet and flew back right to Los Angeles. But apparently they haven't spoken or seen each other since only through lawyers. What is interesting is that a lot of this, these details that had happened on that plane were not released until a FOIA request was filed by a Jane Doe last year in 20 and either end of 2021 or 2022. Um, and uh, this Jane Doe is now, it's now being alleged that the Jane Doe who filed this FOIA request because all of these details were suppressed, uh, filed the FOIA request because they're, they want to bring out the, obviously the sp potential spousal abuse that may have occurred, or at least what did the alter, because the altercation that had happened on the airline or on that, not airline, on that private plane flight had been sort of, you know, sealed, right? And now it's out there. And then this was Vanity Fair article was talking about this. And there's this massive, 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 massive feud over this estate, which I guess I should probably look up this vineyard, Brad Pitt winery um chateau miravels yes chateau miraval chateau miraval uh so now they're going through this big dispute over the assets and apparently like angelina was buying the vineyard with him and her share was to pay for one dollar he's alleging apparently that the one dollar he never received so therefore she can't own it because the agreement that they had as a couple was if either one of them wanted to sell they had to offer first right of refusal to the other the other one to buy out the vineyard and she didn't do that she agreed to sell it to a to a private group and 
he's angry about that, which is understanding. But, you know, he's apparently very, you know, come clean about his alcoholism and all that stuff. So whatever. The children were terrified of him. That really sucks. They have like four children together. They've adopted. It just, it's all just all bad, bad, bad. I, I, you know, um, but because I think about like a lot of people, you know, reach out to me about is I, I quit drinking uh, now almost three years ago. And a lot of people, you know, talk about like, it seems like there's very, there's a lot of like bad decisions are made when alcohol is involved. And this is of clear, of course, one of them, like he terrorized his family. And of course he wanted to apologize to his children and he's devastated by his actions, but like, you know, it, no offense to anyone who drinks, but if you have a problem, let's not involve the children. Uh, for sure. You know, uh, it's just, it's all just, it's all just a mess. So yes. Okay. So Chateau Miraval and yes, six children with Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. Okay. Anyways, speaking of movies, blindsided Michael Orr, the former NFL star who played for eight seasons, I believe with the Baltimore Ravens, maybe Denver Brown, I don't know, some team. Uh, he uh, is alleging that his adoption and that the blind side and the whole concept of the movie, whole film was a big lie. And the Tuies, which had supposedly adopted him. And now, mind you, Sandra Bullock won an Academy Award for her role as playing the mother. And uh, it was a fantastic film. Well, apparently he is now alleging, as of an interview in Sports Illustrated like a couple of days ago, that... Uh, that it was all a lie and that he was, in fact, uh, blindsided, literally blindsided by the fact that he was actually in a conservatorship and he didn't find this out until like six months ago. Now, there's been a lot of talk about conservatorships, right? We've seen, you know, obviously Spears versus Spears, right? And the, you know, the whole Britney Spears debacle and, um, you know, conservatorships, are sometimes either a great thing for people and sometimes they're really not. So he's alleging that not only did all of this, um, did, was he entered into a conservatorship without his, uh, without his knowledge, uh, but he only just discovered this six months ago as I, I think he's like 37, 38 years old now. And he's just discovered this because apparently that he is alleging that the Tui family kept all the proceeds, not only from the book, but from the film, which is something like a total of like $15 million, which is absolutely crazy to me. Um, you know, and obviously the Tui family has lawyered up and they're saying, you know, they, they've been sort of mum, but the youngest son has come out and said, this is all an extortion attempt to get more money. But apparently the deal that they had signed, because the, the movie, the, the film, I believe, grossed something like three or four hundred million dollars. Like I said, Sandra Bullock won an Academy Award for it uh, years ago. And apparently um, the family had signed a, a very lucrative deal, like getting two and a half percent of net profits to the production company, uh, which, you know, put a line their pockets with a lot of money. So they're alleging that, uh, here he is alleging that they basically took him for a ride. They didn't, and they never shared that money with him. Now, of course, the Tuies are saying that, oh, we have proof. We have receipts. We wrote him checks. Apparently he had stopped taking their checks. I don't know. It's a big kerfuffle, but, uh, yeah, totally, totally blindsided um, is what he's alleging. And I think back to, uh, you know, just conservatorships in general and just sort of thing. And, and, you know, I've spoken on the podcast before about, about how, uh, you know, I often 
would as a teenager go in and, and to like adoption support groups. And obviously I knew I was adopted, right? Uh, because when I was finally adopted when I was like 13, yeah, 13. Um, I, I, you know, I knew I was adopted, but a lot of kids didn't know that they were adopted. And, uh, you know, so when they grow up, they sort of, they really, they, they feel blindsided by the fact that they, uh, were, didn't know that they were adopted and that, okay, they're, they're now coming to the realization that what they thought was their mom and dad wasn't really their mom and dad. Right. I think it'd be, you know, obviously he's a, a young black man and they're a white couple from Tennessee. So, you know, obviously he knows that they're not his real parents and, and he, he entered their home much later, uh, like probably like around the same time that I was adopted, like 13, 14, something like that. Uh, he had entered their cussing. Maybe it was even a little bit later, but, um, he had come in, uh, but the whole thing was, is that they were adopted. And I think that when I look at this particular case, right. Or, or, or what he's alleging, I get that there, that money is like a big deal. Like I didn't get the money there. I was in a conservatorship and I know that there will be this retaliation. And the twoies are saying that he's, uh, you know, he's making it all up. They didn't steal any money. They did this and this and this. I think what the, I think really at the heart of this, when I think about this is if he really thought that he was adopted, because like, how would he really know if you didn't look that up and they said, Oh, we adopted you. And then they found out that he was really tricked into a conservatorship and they've been taking money. Look, he played in the NFL. I don't know what kind of money he made in the NFL. I don't think he was a huge star and made a bunch of money. I think he was like a defensive lineman, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I don't remember him being a huge breakout star, but he got to the NFL and that's enough credit because that's a very hard thing, very, very difficult thing to do to play in the NFL, let alone for like eight seasons, right? But I think that a lot of this is rooted in the fact that he is, that he was blindsided, <laughs> not, to, not to be snarky about it, but that he feels that he could have, um, that, you know, he feels violated. And therefore he's retaliating. He, he feels like he was hoodwinked by these people that they lied to him and that he feels like perhaps that, that it was all financially motivated. I think that's at the core of this. That's how I would feel if I was in his position and knowing what I know, having, you know, obviously spent part of my life in the foster care system, then being adopted, right. Is that he, I think it's a lot of it is really rooted in the fact that he does not, you know, that, that he feels taken advantage of and forget the financial thing for, he feels manipulated by people that he trusted that had his best interest at heart. And look, they certainly made it out to be that they were these white knights on, you know, on horseback coming in and, and saving, saving this poor child from an, or who never even had a bed to sleep in and who was an urban kid and yada, yada, yada. Right. We know the story. Uh, I think that's at the heart of this is it's yes, we are quick to say, okay, it's all about the money. And I'm sure money has a large part to do with it, but I don't think it's the whole story. I think it, I think he's really, really, if this is true, he's really very hurt by this, that he feels that maybe his story was exploited and taken advantage of in a way that is very unique to someone who is placed into a family and then, you know, sort of rug pulled and to find this out later in life. Again, I go back to these adoption groups that I used to be a part of when these kids almost felt rug pulled because the, the parents didn't tell them that they were adopted because they, you know, like, like 
they don't look at them as adopted kids. They look at them as their own children. So why would they be like constantly reminding them every day when they adopted them as little, little kids or as babies that they were adopted? Like they weren't, they were like, no, you're my child and I love you. Right. And then these kids would have the same reaction as teenagers that they would find out they were adopted and they go off the rails. Right. It's, um, it's a lot. I think that's what lies at the heart of this. If I would just to give my two cents on it, that is really what has happened in this particular scenario. I feel because, um, you know, it's how I would feel. I'd be like, wait, are you kidding me? You, you wait, hold on. So you use this. There was a book written about it. It was a New York times bestseller. Then it becomes this big movie, but it's all based on a lie. And not only that you lied to me, and you then took all this money and didn't share it? I don't know. We'll see how this all plays out. But as a kid who was adopted, my heart goes out to, to this guy. Because if that is true, you know, because it doesn't seem that, it seems to me that from what I've seen online, from what I've read, is that the Tuies, their argument is that, um, that they paid him. And that they had always set aside money and put it in a trust or something like that. They never said that they didn't lie to him. And that's the thing that I think is interesting. Now, look, look more and more, this is going to unfold. This is just new, you know, this just came out like 36 hours ago, right? So we'll see how this all, how the chips, you know, let the chips fall where they may, right? And then we can assess more of it. But my instincts is that he feels used and abused and further traumatized by this despite his upbringing because he felt that they were really his parents. And that's a really, again, as someone who's adopted, who has been around adopted kids a lot growing up in these support groups, is a really, really heavy thing to, to sort of come to terms with. And now you're coming to terms with this later in life. Like, oh, was this all about money? Did you even really love me? Did you even really care about me? Or was this all about you know, virtue signaling, if you will, and looking like the poster child. And look, look how wonderful we are that we took this poor, you know, uh, uh, African-American kid, uh, black kid out of poverty and brought him into our family. Look at us. And he's, I think he's weighing all of that. Whereas he maybe genuinely felt this love and respect and, you know, and felt part of a family and to have that taken away from you, have that bubble being burst. I'm not with it. I get it. I get it. He would be upset. That's my that's my two cents on that. Oh, uh, last thing on the menu we have uh, of the day on the Wednesday wrap. Rex Hoyerman is now uh, who is you know obviously under arrest is has been indicted in the uh, Gilgo Beach uh, murders and is now being investigated and awaiting and what a just a nightmare that is with the Long Island serial killer case and he's the chief suspect obviously again innocent until proven guilty but. He owned a timeshare, apparently, in Las Vegas. And he owned this timeshare around um, 2004 to 2013, is now being looked at as a suspect in disappearances and potential killings of sex workers in Las Vegas and in the area. And um, obviously, it sort of fits the motive of, of what police are alleging and what the authorities and... and, and um, uh, district attorney is alleging that he committed in Long Island. So, you know, he was back and forth a lot to Las Vegas as owning a timeshare, Mr. Hoyerman. And, um, you know, as people with timeshares do, they go and enjoy their timeshares, right? Just another reason to stay away from Las Vegas. 
I am not a big fan. No offense to anyone that's from Vegas. Not a big Vegas fan. Not a biggest Vegas fan at all. But, you know, it's, um, you know, it, they're looking at these disappearances and, and murders uh, because they're saying that they died under similar circumstances as the cases that he is facing in Long Island. So they're finding a motive and they're looking into this. And uh, it's really, really, uh, it's really, really interesting because they're, you know, they're obviously going to check the DNA and go back through and, you know, Las Vegas is rampant with, with people who are sex workers and who work in that industry. I mean, that's why they call it Sin City, right? So, um, yeah, just interesting uh, how this, I mean, very tragic if this trail of, uh, if this trail goes from, like I said, Long Island to then they're possibly looking into the Carolinas and now out to Las Vegas. Oh, just so sad for all the victims and the families that have been uh, affected by this. And, um, yeah, uh, turning to some of your, um, turning to some of your comments, uh, Laura O'Neill, uh, says I quit drinking over 15 years ago. I found that even drinking moderately affects our judgment, etc. uh, affects our judgment and, uh, congrats on quitting. Yeah. I'm not here to really talk, to discuss sobriety in, in depth. In fact, you know, I was reading an article yesterday that, that, uh, this is probably what brought this as top of mind. I was reading an article um, that it was on Wired and that they have a, um, that scientists have been working with, obviously studying monkeys, right? And they were injecting uh, monkeys with a gene into their brainstem. And what they had done is they had given these monkeys alcohol for like six months or whatever the equivalent of nine drinks a day, which for anyone who drinks nine drinks is a lot of drinks. Like you are drunk all day. That's for sure. You are at least buzzed up out of your, out of your gourd. So, um, well, depending on who's pouring the drinks, of course, but no, in all seriousness, buzzed up out of your gourd. And the fact is, is that, uh, is they began in, putting this, this gene into their, their brain stems, injecting this into their brain, uh, where this gene replaces dopamine. And because one of the, the effects of, and I, and I will get into this in another podcast episode, of course, but, uh, that dopamine, you know, you, when you drink, you, it brings euphoric effects, you become happy and, and it, it hits your dopamine receptors and everything is wonderful and great. And then as it progresses, then it gets, you start to, you know, d- detox or withdrawal, not detox, but withdrawal from the alcohol, which sends you crashing down because it spikes your dopamine and then it crashes. Right. And as with any addiction at all, right. Is you, you, these, these, you know, highs and lows, right. And they found that after injecting these, um, these particular, uh, mice with, or not mice, uh, sorry, uh, monkeys, monkeys or mice, animals, lab animals <laughs> with these particular gene is that they drank less. And so they offered them alcohol and water, right? And they continually went back to the water versus the alcohol. And over a period of a year, they drank 90% less alcohol just by this one little gene replacement sort of therapy uh, to replace these dopamine receptors in their brains. So it's really something interesting. And I was talking to a friend of mine about this yesterday who has a little bit of a problem. And we, he was like, Oh, I'm really hungover. And I was like, well, I was like, you know, you should check out this article and et cetera, et cetera. But, um, 
but uh, it is something that's that's very interesting when you when you look at like re- recovery and you look at uh, the way that um, that we you know that we um, that we go through recovery. Uh, let me see here. This uh, I will read exactly what animal it was. <laughs> A single doe. Uh, yeah, it was into monkeys. I just want to make sure I have my animals right. Mice, no. Monkeys, yes. So yeah. So the article, if you, for those of you that would like to know, is called is by Wired. It's called "Injecting a Gene into Monkeys' Brains Curbed Their Alcohol Use." Chronic drinking depletes the brain's dopamine levels. A single dose of a gene therapy reset them and stopped the craving for alcohol. So that's the uh, that's the article. If you want to check it out, it is on Wired. It came out uh, a few weeks ago or a few days ago. And um, yeah, highly recommend you check it out. Uh, I want to say thank you to everyone who tuned in today. This is the Wednesday wrap. Uh, thank you all so much to my uh, channel members, channel subscribers, my Patreon subscribers. Please, if you will, as you do, you know the drill. Please click like, please subscribe, please hit the alert bell to be alerted. And uh, I really appreciate your support. And uh, please leave me a comment. If you like this episode, please shoot me a message, shoot me a comment. Let me know what y'all think. On that note, I'm Collier Landry. This is Moving Past Trauma. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. For exclusive content around this podcast, please consider supporting me via Patreon by going to collierlandry.com forward slash support. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave us a five-star review. If you want to see video episodes of this podcast, please check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. You can find links to additional resources in the show notes of today's episode. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio. Copyright Collier Landry.